So meanwhile, I've had about 12 options for Broadway, and none of my works have ever reached there. Because of the show business, I want to do what I wanted to do. At least, I'm not rich and don't change my mind. You can change what you want. But not you can change. I mean, ask me to change. Because <laughs> <laughs> people willing to do that to each But I don't want to change what I mean. Mm. And this is where the movies and television and Broadway, don't you think it would be nice instead of these stand-up people that someone comes in and changes and rescues and so forth? Well, no, I didn't. I want to do what I want to do. And maybe I will. I've done a lot of it. Some people say they're waiting in the wings. A lot of us are working in the wings. We do what we want to do. Mm. And this reward will go on and in the works that I'm doing and will continue to do and enjoy your creative experience no matter where it takes you or how long it takes you to get there. And thank you and There is a specter haunting the American theater, the specter of Alice Childress. Hi, my name is Dominique Ryder, and I'm going to be your host through this act of reclamation. This podcast is our attempt to stage an intervention in the current conversation around theater history. Reclamation recenters and uplifts the black writers and storytellers of the American theater, both the celebrated and the forgotten. While the last act focused intently on the history of black performers during the era of minstrelsy, we are focusing our attention on a singular figure in this act. Alice Childress looms as an incredibly important but often forgotten figure within the history of our field. Despite a successful Broadway opening, numerous regional productions, and a renewed interest in the writing of black women, it still doesn't feel like we're seeing her for the titan that she was. And so, here are some questions that are leading us through this act of reclamation. How does someone whose plays continue to speak to the realities of Black people in this world get lost or disappeared for so long? How does such a fierce voice vanish into the crowd? More importantly, how does a person whose accomplishments and legacy such stretch out over decades suddenly become a ghost? The mission of classics is to explode the classical canon through an exploration of Black performance history and dramatic works by Black writers. If we put this another way, the mission of classics is to find new ways to revive the dead. If our ancestors have been resigned to the shadows, then it is our job to shine a light on them. If our ancestors have been turned into ghosts, doomed to vanish into the depths of history, then it is our job to reach out across space and time. We start here. For the first episode of Act Two, I am joined by fellow Classics member and Capital D dramaturg, Armenda Thomas. Thank you, Armenda, for being here. Thank you for having me, Dominique. It felt really important to me to start this sort of conversation with you because I consider you um, really a personal window into Childress for me. You were the first person that sent me wine in the wilderness you were the first person that i was able to really talk to about her plays and so i think i would love to know how you became obsessed with alice childress okay well first of all let me say that i am so happy and proud to be your gateway drug (laughs) (laughs) so i discovered alice childress the summer after i graduated from um the dramaturgy program at Columbia, which means that I had a whole master's and I stumbled into this job 
I was the archivist for Ossie Davis and Ruby D and spent some time in their basement kind of putting together their life and their work. And it was really interesting, um, I think on one level that I had, I was, I was kind of a full grown woman and a, and a small D dramaturg at the time, but I knew nothing about black theater and did not know that I didn't know anything about black theater until I found myself in this basement in this job. And one of the people I discovered was Alice Childress, um, in part because Ruby D had done four productions of a play called Wedding Band, a play I'd never heard of. And the Davises had attempted to produce this play, had, had attempted to gather the funds to produce it on Broadway. So it was a really important project for them by someone that I had never heard of. So that was, and she counted, um, counted it among that, the role she played, she played the role of Julia. And she counted that like one of the most important roles of her career. And I had never heard of it. So the, this was kind of the repeating, but then also um, she, the, there was a group that uh, Ruby D was part of that launched her career called the American Negro Theater. A thing I'd never heard of. And that, and one of the most important people in that group or one of the key members of that group was Alice Childress. So I just became interested at that point um in you know who who is this woman who is this writer why don't i know her um and then that kind of compounded later like a couple of decades later maybe i was working with elizabeth van dyke on the going to the river festival this was 2017 maybe 2018 in there um and she did a reading of wedding band as part of the festival and when I heard the words because I had skimmed drafts of the script in the basement but I had never really heard it and when I heard it I just was blown away and then kind of kismet kind of the universe working on me that I was asked to do a tiny bit of dramaturgy for a teacher who was doing a production of Trouble in Mind a student production and needed them to have some background into the civil rights movement and said, oh, you do this. And again, so I said, okay, let me read Trouble in Mind and figure out what this is about. And again, blown away and just reading the history of Trouble in Mind. And then I asked at New Perspectives the next year to do um, Wine in the Wilderness, to do a reading of that. Uh, New Perspectives has uh, is a theater company in New York and they have a a series called On Her Shoulders, where they celebrate um, women writers who have gone before and annually they try to make sure that they include uh, a Black writer. And I just assumed that they had done Childress already because they were like seven or eight years into this. I just knew that Childress was already taken. And they said, no, we never have. I felt like just over and over and over, I was drawn into um, just the space, the more I read, you know, of her and about her, the bigger the, the gap, the bigger the space, the empty space where she should be uh, kind of occupied my mind. And so I think by the time we met, um, one of the first things, you know, I said was, I just, you know, I want to see Alice Childress everywhere. I want an Alice Childress season in Harlem. I want, I mean, I was just, because I was just that keyed up. Um, and so, 
And I remember you said, oh, can you meet me and talk and tell me about Alice Childers? And I'm interested in knowing what was it about that conversation that uh, that infected you? What was it that made you want to explore more? Because you went even deeper. You went into unpublished plays and you just went all in. So I, I want to know how that happened for you. Yeah. You know, before before you and I had a conversation, I um I got a text from my former boss from at a theater I used to work at when I was like an artistic fellow. And he was like, have you ever heard of Trouble in Mind? And to set the scene, it's like maybe 11.30 p.m. at night. <laughs> and he's like, have you ever read Trouble in Mind? And I was like, no, thinking it was a new play. And I was like, oh, when was it published? And he was like, 1954. <laughs> and he was like, this play written by this writer named Alice Childress, um, we are failed because we, because, right, like, it's a failure that you don't know who she is in the same way I didn't know who she is. And I was like, I don't like that. I don't, I don't, I didn't, I really didn't like that, especially because I had spent a lot of my time in college really dedicated to doing plays by Black writers, other writers of color. But one of the sort of things I didn't do is I didn't do a lot of older plays. I think the oldest play I ever directed then was um, a presentation of the Colored Museum, right? And and so I sort of immediately knew when he said that, I was like, there's something missing in my own education that I need to correct. And so then got involved with classics, met you, had that conversation. And no, sorry, before even before that, it, it, it turned out that my dad, had read stage directions for a reading of Trouble in Mind at a theater in Dallas. And so he still had his script. And so it, it was like so serendipitous because he was coming up, he brought his binder with him. And um, I sat in his hotel room while he slept and just read that play three times. Oh, I love that. And I was like, this is the best thing I've ever read. There's no, there's nothing else but this play. I was like, Trouble in Mind is, is definitive. Like, it's, it's it. Why have I never read this play before? And then classics happened. We met. And I think from talking to you, the thing that really fascinated me was I, I was the, the way in which Trouble in Mind didn't move, right? The way it was supposed to move, the way it didn't move, the way it gets really disappeared and I was just sort of to myself I was like well if this has gotten if this has vanished what are the other things and so I spent a lot of time just reading every play of hers that I could because I, I really immediately was like this is someone whose plays I want to be directing and it doesn't feel right that I just read one I should be able to talk about an entire body of work I should be able to talk about Alice Childress's canon if I even want to approach doing these plays right and and just talking to you was so helpful too because it's like there are and it's the thing about moving to new york and being able to go to the schomburg um right like there are there are so many plays in that place that just don't see the light of day and so many plays by these titans and legends that we don't know about and that for me was really exciting because it's like there are so many black plays i just want to be working on i could work on a black play for the rest of my life uh, by a different writer every year and just be happy. And But with Children's, I was like, this woman is a genius, kind of. And there are some 
writers that I am told are geniuses that I don't think are doing a third of what she's doing in her plays. And so I knew very instinctively, I was like, I want to be doing this woman's plays. And the more I learned about her, um, her interest in, you know, communism, her interest in, at times, like philosophy, because I think a lot of her work is is really, um, lends itself to theoretical interpretations. I was just like, this is such fruitful ground. And there's so much to be in mind from these words. And I remember I did a reading of, uh, I did a, a, a reading of Trouble in Mind, and then I got to do a day-long workshop of it at the National Black Theater. And all of the actors in the room were like, oh, this is this is it. This like, w- we don't want to do anything else. Can this go into production tomorrow? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so she, for me, has just been such a door, a sort of, you were the door to her, and then she has opened so many doors for me about thinking about the the sort of plays I want to direct. And I think I think Alice Children's represented a really big shift for me personally away from just thinking about new plays and being really committed to being a director who directs revivals and a very specific type of revival. <laughs> right. Right. I, I think for me, Alice Childress was um, the reason there needed to be classics, not the only reason there needed to be classics. Absolutely. Obviously not the only reason, but kind of the archetype of the reason mm-hmm. there needs to be classics because, because she's so embedded in the history of black theater absolutely she she's kind of intersecting with all of these moments deeply involved and not just black theater but kind of black theater communities the history of 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 all of these little conflicts and deeply affiliated with so many people who have gone on to be uh better known sydney poitier credited her with introducing him to Paul Robeson and credited her with introducing him to um, what it was to think about being an activist, what it was to really think about Black people and the condition of Black people and what artists could do about it. She did so much writing, um, particularly in the 50s. She was so instrumental in trying to build up a black community theater. She has this article where she talks about the need for a strong Negro theater that is embedded in uh, the tradition of of black arts that is pan-Africanic in scope that also allies with and and learns from and is interested with other ethnic theaters like Yiddish theater. She was very appreciative of Chinese theater. You know, she really saw clearly this need to to continue kind of investigating black history and black culture through the arts and mm. advocating for black artists the committee for the negro and the art was a group that had already been formed but she was the leader of the theater unit of that and helped to um establish this this theater in a nightclub called club baron in harlem and that it was the first place where actors got paid at union scale in Harlem. You know, it was that it was because the American Negro Theater had been volunteer. <laughs> we do this and, and support um, and then advocating for uh, for jobs, for jobs on Broadway. She saw like clearly the need and in the ways that, you know, we 
we think about now, right? We think about now, how are we going to get more representation on Broadway? Yes, Alice Childers on Broadway, yes, all of that. But also um, recognizing that 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 in our in our theaters is where the work happens. Right. Right. And and that if you if you lose that, there is something that is really majorly lost. Yeah, and I think that that is also a part of it. Reading about someone who was so I think labor specifically, right? Like black theater at large, and then also specifically labor focus, right? Like figuring out the way, what it takes to bring the union uptown, figuring out how to make sure that people are being paid. And it, it just feels like she was so, like you just said, she was so instrumental. And I was like, there, there are even more reasons to know her then, right? There, she seems so important to what was happening wherever she was. And it feels like a real disservice to not know what she was doing um, and to, 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 to not be aware of who she is and what, why she did it, what she was doing. Uh, because it sometimes feels to me like those sort of things get, you just focus on the art and not about also how the person was moving. I think we see this with Rain Hansberry, where it's just like, we're only going to talk about Raising the Sun for a very long time until someone, until a Black woman is like, wait a minute. We need to contextualize this a little bit more, right? And I think that for me was doors for me in thinking about not only theater, but I think where I was at the time about the what theater can do, what it can't do, and what the way that history uh, erases maybe some of the more important things it can do. I think one thing that's really interesting and fascinating for me is the the amount of you know theater that speaks to our times, right? Her times. Mm -hmm were in such flux and she has pieces that speak to all aspects of that. So you have Trouble in Mind, which is very much at a time when uh, progressives, I mean, this is a play kind of about white allyship, right? In the arts and what it looks like and what it looks like when um, when there's not balance mm -hmm. in that, right? So how when when your allies take over how does that work it's giving you a setting for what that time is and then you have um wedding band which goes back in time but is still telling you about 1966 and yeah. 1972 it's talking about um allyship again right but also interracial marriage but also building communities right of of and also how black women are are kind of bound by the law in specific ways that are detrimental to them and to their children and to and and to society at large because when because when that happens that 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 is a rot that rots from the inside out right right and it's just it's fascinating to go into the layers of the ways that that you know that 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 rot is everybody's rot right um, and then you have Wine in the Wilderness, which is very much a Black arts movement piece, right? In conversation with, um, with we're not going to call it hotepness because that's so pejorative, but, but you know, but in conversation with, um, with a particular a, type of Black masculinity, I think, right? Like a particular type of Black masculinity that presumes it knows what the best representation of Black women feminine or otherwise must be oh, thank you yes exactly that and then and mojo also on a micro level mm -hmm. um and then string 
which is an adaptation of a Maupassant play. Yeah, Maupassant. And, but is so grounded in the the ways that black community was kind of splintering post uh post integration the ways that you know you we were kind of not that kind of like she saw how to how to take that old french piece and bring it into the late 1960s 1970s and and show where the splinters are when we prioritize money when when we associate having made it with success and when you have the downfall of aspirational classes to the community at large and while she would not at that point have called it marxist probably because it was no longer politically uh viable to do so it is what it is right right um and then beyond that you know she has this whole other career as a writer, as a novelist, in fact, when she when she died, the New York Times said she was a novelist. They and and then you know somewhere yeah, and she wrote some plays. But the thing that she was most famous for was the book "A Hero Ain't Nothing But a Sandwich,", a sandwich which is yeah. a which is a young adult novel about uh, about a, a kid who's addicted to heroin that got turned into a, a movie starring Cicely Tyson and was you know it kind of moved her into the conversation in a different way. And yet she says that when she wrote it, it's really a series of monologues. So she thought about that piece as, as a, as an extended play, but because theater kind of could not contain her or she, or she could not deal with the containment that became necessary and had to find other ways to try to express. And then though she considered herself a Harlemite, well, she was born in Charleston, South Carolina and, she was raised by her grandmother who moved to New York, but had like Carolina in her bones and told her all these stories, sometimes reluctantly, but all of these stories that just embedded themselves in her in a way that she she really had a deep uh, affiliation and understanding of that place. And, uh, and she said her stepfather was Gullah. So it's a great migration story. Yeah. It is so much of history is encompassed in her and in her work. Thank you for saying that. I mean, yeah, that's one of the things, and I know you are also a fellow Southerner. That's one of the other things too for me is like the way that, especially in Trouble in Mind, and in Trouble in Mind, in Wedding Band, in in Wine in the Wilderness, the way that geography is also splintering, right? Mm -hmm. The way that there are some characters across all those plays, even with Wedding Band, characters who are in the South that are like, you know, those people. Right. Like, this is the way that those people would act. If this is the way those people would say it, we have to say it that way, right? Um, and it's like, you know, there, there's a rich geography down there. Chill out. And that's and that's always the sort of pushback that she's making, right? Those are not just those people. We are those people too. And that sort of um, real connectivity, I think, especially for me who, who moved to the North and was like, Oh, y'all hate the South. Um, right? <laughs> and I don't, I, and you know, it's one of those things where I am before moving here, <laughs> I was never someone who would defend it. It's like, I just live here. You know what I mean? I live here. These are my folks. And then you get here and it's like, oh, you hate these people. Now and I got I am these people. Exactly. Yes. And now yes. I got to stand in the steed of like these 
invisible black people that you want to shadow box, <laughs> right? Um, and I, every time I, I engage with one of her plays, I'm thinking about that, right? I'm thinking about it in Wine in the Wilderness. Um, every time Tommy gets put down mm-hmm. uh, because of the way she talks. <laughs> right. Right? Yes. Um, and the way that she is able to deal with that real sort of intra-community complexity, I think is so important, especially just in those... Um, when she makes that pivot to writing all black plays, it's just so rich and so fruitful. And so everybody's not doing it like that. I think is what I'll try to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I relate to and recognize that. And as you bring it up, I think you've articulated something that I have felt, but not quite uh, articulated for myself as mm-hmm. a connection, which is that feeling seen. I feel like I maybe assimilated a little, assimilated into northernness. <laughs> It's easy to do though, right? Because it, it it's it's so and and that's not to especially here, right? Especially in New York City, and I love the way New Yorkers talk, but it is sometimes just like the it, it's an attitude thing. It's mm-hmm. the every time I tell you I'm from Texas, it's the um oh I'm so sorry. What hold on, stop. What are you sorry for? It, exactly, exactly. Yes, I, I used to tell people I was from Memphis, and they talked to me about cows. <laughs> Every time I engage with one of her plays, I'm just like, thank you for it. like for, it. and it's because right, like she, regardless of the generational, she is southern, mm-hmm. and and the connection she has to the south, I think, and the the real the way that she sees it as a real class issue mm-hmm. is always so refreshing to like just go back to because it reminds me of my granny, it reminds me of my mom, it reminds me of the family I have that is that are, that live there, mm-hmm. um, and and me, it reminds me of myself in in that way, and I think it's always just so refreshing every time she just like, she tackles it head on for what it is. I mean, and and obviously connected to herself too, because she did not, she did not finish high school. Mm-hmm. Um, her life did not work that way. Her daughter was the first person to to go to college and complete college in, her, in their whole matriarchal line. Um, but she took on from her grandmother, this idea that you can teach yourself, that your life can be led by your curiosity and that you can become all these things. You can create stories. You can tell stories. You can you can be a writer. You can be a thinker. You just need to go pursue it. Right. I mean, and that right. that's, is so much the 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 thing I love about Wine in the Wilderness. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that sometimes the people who have the history have it orally. Yes. Right. That Tommy is the is the keeper of history. Right. Mm-hmm. She just has an oral tradition versus a tradition of writing it down. And that the oral tradition is just as is just as valid, is just as okay, um, and that that too is a kind of education, right? Uh, especially compared to to Bill in that play, who is you know a, a smart black man, uh, <laughs> and in his head, going back to trouble in mind, you know, you have very who is you know training and and studied and feels like he knows more than these other people who have come up and been in these shows and maybe Chitlin Circuit and maybe, you know, playing mates on Broadway and off Broadway and doing, you know, but came with aspirations and understand how the system works and can tell you, uh, can tell you how this thing is is about to go down, Exactly, can tell you how this is about to go down. And yet she allows that there is something to be learned from them, Mm -hmm. right? So we'll let her learn something from John, even though he he's a little callous he has something for her they have something for they have something for each other 
um, Tommy has something for Bill and Bill has something for her. They teach each other. And she points out the things that fracture, the things that are toxic in a community, but she does not dismiss the people and the possibility for uh, for unification, the possibility that we can figure our stuff out and and grow from one another, which I think is um, was incredibly generous and it's something I'm trying to carry forward, right? Yeah. Um, it also, I think it maybe bears saying for everyone listening, um, I think Armenda has dramaturged three children's plays. As as either as readings or productions, I have. Right, yeah. Armenda was the dramaturg for um, the production of Wedding Man as directed by the illustrious Williams and Boa Tafana. Um, the two of them also worked together on a reading of Trouble of Mind out in California. Armenda was my dramaturg when I directed Wanda the Wilderness at Roundabout. Um, so if it feels like there's a real sort of... <laughs> Uh, knowledge that you're hearing it's because she's worked on all the places <laughs> and i want to do more right <laughs> i mean really that that's not i i'm 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 plotting and scheming and trying to figure out how to how to get some more how to get some more done as you know <laughs> it's not, yeah no I, I like i said if the, the goal for me really is to by the time the time this career is over if i have directed every one of her plays i'll be i'll you'll never need to hear from me again I, I need to direct every Alice Children's play, and and I uh, I will be completely happy. Yeah. Well, there's something about the ability to live in the work. Yeah. Um, a little. I I I really I feel that, and and I am a fan of many people's work. I am, but I don't think I've encountered someone whose work I really just want to live in for a while. Yeah. It, I it, think that must be yeah. how Ruben Santiago Hudson feels about. August Wilson. You just right. want to live there. And I love August Wilson, but I want to live in Alice Childress's world. Right. There there's something about um the the feeling, even though she is she is gone, the, the ability to sit beside her for a second. Mm-hmm. Um and to watch her build this thing out. Um and yeah, every time I, I, I hear one of the plays, I mean, I remember hearing Wedding Band out loud for the first time and just being like, this woman is on something. She, there's like, she's on a different, there's something going on in there. And it just is every time. It's like, hooray, it's a, it's a new, it's a new breath in the lungs that gets me excited all over again. I think one thing that I'm really curious about is the sort of level of, the level of knowledge about Childress, sort of depending sometimes on the um, attendance of like a PWI versus an HBCU. Because I feel like one of the, <laughs> one of the best things I've experienced about working with classics, right? Um, is that feeling, like when we do a reading, like when we did a wedding band at Safana, when it was a reading, um, is just the fact there are always, there's always like a black person in the audience who either did one of two things. Who was like, I read this play when I was in college mm-hmm. at the HBCU I went to, or they were like, I remember when this play happened. Um, and I love both of those things so much. It always makes me so happy. And so I'm curious if in the sort of time you've spent thinking about Childress and writing about Childress as you have, if you've noticed that sort of disparity. Yes, yes, I have. And I think that that one of the things that's, that it helps me to do because I come from the, uh, you know, the woefully under-informed PWI pathway so this is gonna sound unkind many of the of the of the 
Black writers that I discovered in terms of theater were, you know, probably accidental. Mm. You know, it did it didn't happen because it was in my curriculum. And it was, to be fair, a small PWI. So and you didn't have Black theater studies per, per se, particularly at that time. You can graduate with a bachelor's in theater and go and get a master's in theater and never come across Alice Childress, which is shameful. Um, I, I did that whole thing and never came across Adrian Kennedy, which was shameful. I just barely came across Lorraine Hansberry. But we go into these rehearsal processes, not just the, the readings, but the rehearsal process. And one of the actors that we had the reading with was like, oh yeah, I did. I interviewed Alice Childress. Just my age, I interviewed Alice Childers. And so I think it's really important to remember because when we're feeling all heady with discovery, you know, that the things that we are discovering are not are not things that are hidden. Sometimes you know, my, my discovery is somebody's old hat. And right. I think that that's the thing that I keep learning, you know, that even if I'm just discovering it at 50, <clears throat> something somebody else read this in high school somebody but somebody else read this in college somebody else this was already this was part of their foundation you know they did this reading they made this happen and i'm just uh humble and awed and i think that that's important to the work of um to the work that we do that there are things that we present and we go, hey, you know, this is what we're learning. This is what we're discovering. And it's going to be new for a lot of people, but we're able to do it because so many people have already trod this path. It's been left for us to pick up and carry on. It's not new. It's just, this is information that we're just trying to keep moving forward. Yeah. And it might be a personal discovery, but there is always someone who has known and has been trying to toil the land for as long as right for the time you've discovered and to me at least that's one of the exciting things because it's like oh there's a place to build from that mm -hmm. i am not just sort of um playing in this dirt trying to plant seeds but the seeds have already been planted it is now my job to water them mm -hmm. um and to maybe help other people find the garden in the same way i found the garden um, yes and, and thank really you for important. saying that Yes, and thank you for saying that in like four sentences, but I just took 10 minutes to say. I really appreciate that, I believe. <laughs> well, in, uh, I was working as an actress with uh, the American Negro Theater. We did a great many productions, but we wanted original work. And um, I became interested in writing to do original things uh, for us. And of course, um, I acted on Broadway and Anna cast and things we did there then. But looking for uh, new work and scenes, I started out with one act plays and then uh, did other things and Trouble in Mind and Wedding Band and uh, a great many plays. Uh, people began to expect plays from me. And I also felt I could create more there than as an actress, uh, because you could start at the beginning. And I feel when I've written a play that I've acted all the parts first. <laughs> you um, probably have. <laughs> yes, I did as I was writing them. But I also enjoyed being an actress, and <clears throat> I have done directing, creating something for other people to have. Uh, I remember Harriet Tubman, who freed people during the 
slavery underground railroad. She said she always wanted an apple orchard and she didn't have one and it was such a pleasure to plant a tree that would give apples to others, meaning her work. And I feel that way about what I've done. I tried to write the kind of roles that I felt uh, we didn't have as much of an opportunity to play. And uh, so I it seemed to me directing and acting and any part of theater was a joy. And in writing books, I use theater technique and carry the theater to a book, I see writing a book in terms of scenes. A Hero Ain't Nothing But a Sandwich was in scenes, <laughs> and uh, also uh, Rainbow Jordan and A Short Walk and things. The theater is such a real and fascinating and deep and wonderful place to be that once in it, I don't see how people can get away from it. Um, so Arminda, we're, we're, we're talking so much about her plays and her work, um, as we both know, Trouble in Mind just premiered on Broadway. The, and it was, it was you know, wonderful to finally see that play on a stage, on a stage as big as the American Airlines. But it took a very long time for it to get there. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way Trouble in Mind, you know, supposed to be the first play by a Black woman on Broadway, pre-Raisin, vanishes. Right. So Trouble in Mind was Alice Childress's first full-length play, um, and it was produced downtown. Uh, we would still call it Off-Broadway. Was it produced at a place called the Greenwich Muse, which was, they were really progressive. I mean, they they had colorblind casting before there was colorblind casting, but they also uh, produced plays written by African-Americans. They had produced um, I, William Branch's In Splendid Error, I think, the year before they produced trouble in mind. So one of the people in the creative staff of Greenwich Muse was Osceola Archer, who had been an acting teacher for the American Negro Theater, which may have been um, one of Childress's ways into this play. So Brown versus Board is 54, and they were in rehearsals, basically, when Emmett Till was murdered. So Greenwich Muse produced this the piece in 55, and it, it kind of actually mirrored the play itself. It became a very meta experience because um, it was originally a two act, it was a two act piece, which is the piece that we saw. And Greenwich Muse halfway through the rehearsal process demanded a third act because they could not accept that the white allies, the director, was going to walk out, that they weren't going to learn and have a redemptive moment. So they, they had her create this whole redemptive arc. And at the end, they sang, we are climbing Jacob's ladder together. You know, it was, it was a very feel-good thing. And that version was popular with audiences. It did get some pushback. There was some allusion to the third act being kind of hackneyed. But but it was still a good piece and it got and it was and it was successfully received and it was optioned for Broadway very quickly. Um, so there was an announcement made that it was going to be produced in 1957 and she was working towards that. But the producers who were going to take it to Broadway wanted more changes and then more changes and then more changes. And so she she found 
that she had just lost control of her peace, that it was no longer the thing that she recognized. It was certainly no longer the thing that she wanted to say. And so she pulled it. Um, so that's the story of that. It doesn't happen for her and, and Lorraine Hansberry, who, you know, what, who she knew, they worked together at Paul Robeson's Freedom newspaper and um, worked on a script together of there of a pageant that went up in 1952. <laughs> but then we had almost exactly the same process repeat itself. Um, a few years down the pike, she did a reading of Wedding Band. The first reading of Wedding Band happened in 1963. At New And it went very well. And just a, it, it went up in like October and in January. There was an announcement in the New York Times that it was going to be produced on Broadway that fall. And Diana Sands was going to star. And so it's, you know, yay, happy joy. But then... We, it starts to get those notes again where it's, if only Herman had a bigger role, if only we knew more about Herman, if only we saw more of Herman's family, and does Herman have to die? If this play could be just a little bit more about Herman, a little bit less about this woman and these other women and this yard. And having already learned her lesson, it just shut down. But so we have this piece where the first reading is in 1963, um, it then it's produced in Ann Arbor as a production that they think will probably get it back to Broadway in 1966. That doesn't happen. Um, and then there's another production that's supposed to happen in Atlanta in 1968. And the board of directors for that theater actually bankrupted the theater, shut it down, and then reformed it with the same artistic director, but the and no, we're not talking about this play anymore. Yes. So I I did not know that. And then it got produced in 1972 in Chicago. And then finally it went to the public. Uh it went to the public theater in 1972. But that that whole journey from 63 to 72, that's nine years before it before it gets seen in New York. And in that time, one in the wilderness had already been produced. String had already been produced. Yeah. I, I can't believe, I mean, I can believe because of the way anti-Blackness works, but to, to to bankrupt your own theater and then reform it and just be like, we don't know what play you're talking about. So that's, yeah, that's a lot. Abby Lincoln was supposed to star in that play because I think at that point, Ruby D was doing Peyton Place. Mm. So she was unavailable, but, you know, it had a it had a cast it had a lot of enthusiasm there was a lot of writing leading up to this piece happening um abby lincoln did did some stage reading with alice childress i think that there are clips of that on youtube mm. was going to happen it was going to happen and then suddenly the theater is gone and then a couple of months later here's this theater back with a slightly different name and no wedding band Wow. Yeah, that's a thing we discovered while we were working on it. While you were working on it. Yeah. No, while that's... we were working on it. And yet she keeps working. I mean, because that would make me crazy. I mean, you know, it may be the thing that made her say, let me write a book. Because. Right. It, because you got two back to back with Trouble and Wedding Band, sort of for, right, for similar but different reasons. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that's so tough, I think, about the, the Trouble in Mind story to me is that it's easy to just sort of be like, oh, the reason this third act exists is because of 
some people she didn't know who were producers who thought it would be better, right? When it's like, actually, no, the people that demanded this sort of reconciliation coalition thing are her friends, are people she works with, are people that like claim to understand her, right? Mm -hmm. And they think that the, the message needs to be one of racial reconciliation. And it's like, I don't know if that's what that play is doing. Right. That right. I, I don't know if I don't know if if um, Manners singing Jacob's Ladder at the end of the play does what it needs that accomplishes the goal. Right. Yeah. It's the power struggle that they don't that isn't being recognized in the play until exactly. the very end, in and then life. isn't necessarily being recognized in real life. And she had this thing where she talked about you know you 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 feel like. You're in the middle of something. The actors are depending on it. The crew is depending. And, you know, there's a whole thing in motion here. And you you start to second guess yourself. Maybe maybe this is okay. And also, she's a fairly young playwright at this time. I mean, a newish. She's written. Mm -hmm. She wrote her first play in 1949 on a dare. <laughs> she says on a, you know, or that that's the, that's the way it's handed down to us, that she... Um, had a complaint about the the lack of quality roles for women in ANT and also about the dearth of plays being written actually at that point by Black authors. And she got challenged to to do something and she brought it in a couple of days and that was Florence. So she does this and then she's done and then she moves a and then American Negro Theater uh, eventually folds and she transitions to Club Baron and the Committee for the Negro on the Arts Theater project. And she does Just a Little Simple, which is a musical adaptation of Langston Hughes's uh, character, Jesse B. Simple. And that is so popular that he gets the idea to do it himself. <laughs> and his goes on Broadway. But, you know, she does that. And then she does this piece called Go Through the Trees, which incorporates music and dance. And it's dealing with, with, not just African-American history, but African diasporic history. So it has Harriet Tubman. It has a woman in Haiti. It has South Africa. This is 1952. I don't know that we understand how we have consistently been um, encouraged to be Pan-Africanic in scope. Do you know what I mean? I think I yeah. feel I I think we always feel like that's a more recent thing, and it's not a more recent thing at all. I, as we discovered when we talked about Indahomey, right? Right. But those were the things she had written before she got to Trouble in Mind. So she comes out with such a clear vision. It's just incredible to to think about and to and to witness and to read through. I feel like one of the hardest things in terms of thinking about Alice Childress is actually sort of finding ways for her to talk about herself. And so I'm wondering for you, as someone who is so deeply uh, defined by a relationship to research, how has that been difficult? <laughs> well, I mean, the first time I started to try to build a biography for Childress, one of the first things you run into is nobody can agree on the year she was born. There were some who said 1916. There were some who said 1920. 1920 was the year that she gave, right? But when you have so many conflicting uh, pieces of information, it's very hard. And part of that is that she was vague for reasons that we understand, which is women who are performers uh, during that time, as she has, well, let us say, a woman who will tell her age will tell anything. And a woman who tells her age um, on the stage is limiting her career. 
But then because she was mom about that, it also caused her, I think, to downplay her early experiences. So it's hard to get a feel for when she started as a performer. A little later, she talks with Kathy Perkins about Vinzilla Jones, who ran the Negro Youth Theater Unit during the um, Federal Theater Project. So we know that she had some experience in the 30s. She was also a young mother in the 30s. There's a conference, Association for Theater and Higher Education, ATHE, the year before she died. They honored her and she gives a speech and she talks about starting out. She says that her first, she tells the story about how her first paying job in the theater was while she was in Mississippi researching uh, Bessie Smith, talking to people about Bessie Smith. Well, Bessie Smith died in 1934. But we know that when she got to the American Negro Theater, she was considered someone with experience, Mm. right? So though that is really her launching point in 1941, she joins the American Negro Theater, I think. So it starts in 40, but she joined in 41 with Alvin Childress, whom she was married to at the time. And that launches her career, but she's already working. She feels fully formed. Right. You know, she becomes a teacher pretty quickly. She becomes a director pretty quickly in that theater. She becomes somebody that that people look up to, but we don't get the backstory of why that is. Because She's not interested in her age being known. Right. So I was just wondering if you could maybe talk about some of the ways she did herself and what she was sort of up to during those periods. One of the things that's really interesting is she started out as a performer, right? So for Anna Lucasta, she was a scene stealer. There was a lot of attention that was given to her performance, even though she wasn't a lead. So I think that there's, there's, there's something about that, that she was not uh, a limelight seeker necessarily Mm. um which is not to say that she didn't want her work to be recognized in a way that i think made it a little harder to see um where she is it makes it harder to locate her right and that's the adventure we're on and are excited to explore in this podcast next week we'll talk to kathy perkins lighting designer childress friend and editor of the childress selected plays Thank you so much, Arminda, for being here, and thank you all for listening in. This has been the first episode of Act Two of the Reclamation Podcast. Our sound editor is the wonderful Aubrey Dubay. The theme song was composed by Alfonso Horn. For more information on Alice Childress, please visit theclassicswithanx.org and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We'll see you next week.